Welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford. And I'm Trevor Thrall. During the 2016 campaign, Donald Trump repeatedly promised that America would fight no more wars of regime change. He's resisted pressure to increase U.S. troops in Syria, maintain troop levels in Afghanistan, but there's a mysterious exception. Uh, Since last year, the president has repeatedly asked his military advisors why America can't just intervene and send in the troops in Venezuela's ongoing political and humanitarian crisis. The administration recently went a step further, supporting, perhaps even encouraging, Venezuelan opposition leader Juan Guaido as he declared himself to be acting president in opposition to Nicolas Maduro. Heavy sanctions on Venezuela's oil exports followed, uh, but there's no real clarity on what's going to happen next. So today we're chatting with Maish Rendon, Associate Director and Fellow of the Americas Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He specializes in Latin American politics, particularly his home country of Venezuela. Maish, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks. And I apologize. I'm almost certainly slaughtering your name. No, no, it's okay. Sounds sounds great. (laughs) So as usual, we'll start with a quick discussion of recent non-Venezuela news. Um, And where I want to start is everybody's favorite, Saudi Arabia. Um, It's back in the news once again. Once again, it's not good. Uh, The House Committee on Oversight released a report opening an investigation into the Trump administration's dealings with Saudi Arabia on the question of nuclear power. Basically, it seems like Michael Flynn and some others were trying to sell the Saudis a nuclear reactor, potentially illegally. Any thoughts on this? Well, I mean, it's, it's, you know, you say this is about Saudi Arabia and it's not good, but is it really not good on Saudi Arabia's part or is it not good on, I don't know, the Trump administration's part? To me, you know, uh, you know, you 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 watch Twitter all day and you see people say stuff like, "Why do they need a nuclear? They got all the oil." And I'm like, "Well, wouldn't it be smart if they didn't just rely on the oil eventually? Why wouldn't they want a nuclear power uh, capability?" Um, but they shouldn't be sold one illegally by the United States. I'm pretty sure about that. Yeah, no, that's the question, right? That's the bigger question: Should Saudi Arabia start diversifying their natural resources? Or is there a strategy to counterrest Iran's um, position, right, in the region? Because that's that's the security question that the U.S. and any any country should be concerned about. Yeah, actually, there's been a debate across the Gulf about diversifying energy sources. And if you look at the way the Saudis actually use their energy, if they don't diversify, they're going to basically use all their own oil for domestic consumption within about 10, 15 years. So so they do have a legit reason for wanting this. But there's also that question of they might have an illegitimate reason too. Yeah, I think that's worth considering. And certainly, you know, you'd like to think there'd be a congressional discussion and I hope debate about the wisdom of doing this sort of thing uh, well before you get to the mechanics of how you would do it. And it looks like clearly the cart was before the horse on this one. Well, we may have to have a longer discussion on this at some point, (laughs) I think, with someone that actually knows about nuclear issues. Um, But moving from nuclear power to nuclear weapons, uh, we have another North Korea summit coming up. On February 27th and 28th, Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un will again meet, this time in Hanoi, Vietnam. No clear policy agenda again, but everybody agrees it's probably better than the alternative. What do you think we could expect from this summit? I mean, the the question here also is if Kim Jong-un being honest and is he hiding any nuclear capabilities to to, to make nu- nuclear uh, bombs in a way that 
no one is seeing in it. Um, I don't know. He he's been repressing his own people for so long, and being Venezuelan myself kind of makes me by nature skeptical about his word and, and the way he makes any any policy uh, agreements. Right? Not not even with with Trump, with President Trump, but with any other political leader. So I'm always skeptical about about dictators and, and, and people who repress their own people. Yeah, there's also a question, I think, of does he even want to promise anything? Does Kim Jong-un want to give up his nuclear weapons? And quite frankly, I can't see why he would. They're an insurance policy for him. As you say, he's a terrible dictator. Nuclear weapons are pretty much the only thing that guarantee that he'll be able to hold power. Yeah. I, and the thing that I'm trying to figure out is Trump's play here. Because the the way I've sort of been reading this, you know, he he sort of manufactures crisis and drama, and then, you know, I'm using air quotes here, wins by reducing the drama that he started for no reason by you know meeting with this guy and declaring love and, and peace and kumbaya. And the odd thing is is that I looked up the polls, uh, the majority of Americans think things are a little better now than they were before, and. You know whether that's true or not. Trump, I think, got a mini, a mini victory of sorts out of that, and I. So I kind of think Trump's playing with house money here. I think he goes, he he can press a little bit because I think his advisors want him to press, of course. But it ain't nothing going to happen, so he's not going to get anything. And but Trump already, it was okay already for him not to get that or to get any promises towards that. So I think he plays lovey-dovey. Maybe he declares an end to the war and says, we're best friends now. There's no more threat. We win some more. And that's it. Do you really want a man playing with house money that already sent casinos bankrupt? Well. <laughs> well, on, on a lighter note then, we, we just learned that after the last North Korea summit, uh, Japan nominated President Trump for a Nobel Peace Prize. What we've just learned was that the administration actually asked the Japanese if they would go ahead and do it. So, admirable self-promotion like we're all taught to do or just tacky beyond belief? So this is a guy who used to call up journalists pretending to be someone else to say nice things about Donald Trump. This is right out of the Trump playbook. This is him in a... I mean, this is so Trump. This is so on brand for him. It's not even funny. What's sad is, is Abe. Like, that is just so... He, he That is sad. I mean, I know the U.S. is important to you guys. And you know the old saying, you know, the strong do what they will, the weak do what they must. But do they do that? I don't think so. Yeah. I'm a bit surprised, to be honest, by um, by the Japanese agreeing to do this. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the Japanese people are serious and every time they commit to do something, it's because they really mean it. And, and getting to know many, I mean, I have many Japanese friends and their culture and their way to to deal with these issues is always upfront and being honest. So I don't know. I'm I'm just I saw this news and got me got me a little bit surprised. Yeah, just another stake, I guess, in the trying to impress Trump uh, sweepstakes. We've we've had the playing golf with him. We've had the trying to impress him by putting his face on the side of hotels, and now we're all going to nominate him for a Nobel Peace Prize. Well, uh, let's turn instead to a topic that is uh, a little sadder, a lot more difficult, uh, and that's Venezuela. Um, and I'm, I'm really glad that you're here today, Maish, because we have been having trouble even keeping up with what's going on inside Venezuela. Things have been getting worse for so many years, uh, but in the last couple of months, things just really seem to have exploded out of control. So I thought we could start with a little background for our listeners, um, because the crisis is much older than the last couple of months. Um, and 
I really want to just talk about how did we get here? Because this is an economic crisis, it's a humanitarian crisis, it's to some extent a political crisis, but the first two have been around a lot longer. So perhaps a little background? Yeah, sure, thanks. Um, yeah, so this has been a 20-year-old um, dismantling of institutions, check and balances. In, in a sense, it's been a 20-year-old coup d'etat, right, which is started by Hugo Chavez. Um, and, and, and on the way, when Chavez be, uh, came into power, he started um, oppressing uh, the private sector. We have more than 1,500 expropriations to big companies in Venezuela. He started imposing economic policies that restrict the economic freedom of the people. He started imposing price controls, and a cha a currency exchange controls. And, and in a way, uh, he closed up every single free market mechanism that, that a country has. On top of that, you have the biggest oil mismanagement present probably ever. Um, as the prices of the oil prices were going up, um, Chavez made sure to use those oil prices to fund social programs. And in a way, that kind of created this bubble of prosperity in Venezuela between 2006 to 2011, where the price, the oil prices were up. And, and that's where you see poverty kind of going down from 50% to 30% in that period. But now today, and the country is completely collapsed and it's all man-made. It was not a natural disaster who created this. It was not a war. The conditions inside of the country are like a war scenario though. And, and that's where you see the consequences of all these man-made policies that were driven by Chavez and then Nicolás Maduro. You know, something that I, I do find particularly interesting here, just as, as somebody that watches oil-rich states, I mean, every oil-rich state had a really bad time of after 2014 when oil prices fell through the floor. But none of them collapsed like Venezuela. And you're right, it's economic mismanagement. It's a big part of it. The, the overspending on social programs, the corruption. But then also, um, you said dismantling of institutions. I've often been struck in the Venezuelan case by just how the oil company which used to actually be quite well run. Basically, they, the Maduro and Chavez sort of replaced uh, the, the actual bureaucrats with flunkies, and the oil company actually started to produce less oil as they went on. They got less competent over time. Yeah, they went from 3.2 million barrel per day in 2013 to 2014. And as today, in 2019, the production is up to a, is down to 800,000 uh, Burials. So yes, the oil production has been uh, also collapsed as the economy is collapsing as well. And the key turning point there was 2002, uh, when Hugo Chavez publicly on a TV show um, expelled and fired over 2,000 top employees from that oil company that is called Pedavesa. And that's where you start seeing the oil production kind of um, being being strapped. And, and and now you see all these experts, Venezuelans, very high qualified people in cities like Houston, in Mexico City, in Cancun, in, in Bogota, Colombia, and in Norway. You see all this diaspora of Venezuelans all over the world, and they're very high qualified. So for a day after a scenario, Venezuela is going to need them back. And that's a big question that we have today. 
Yeah. So perhaps you could talk a little too, I guess, about how this, so that's obviously an economic crisis, but how did it get into such a bad humanitarian state? Because I think we've all been struck by these pictures of just supermarkets with nothing on the shelves, people can't buy food. How did we get from the economic crisis to that? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, so again, this was an ongoing process of dismantling the private sector. So as as that happened, the capacity to produce any food, any medicine domestically is staggered. Like it, it was very limited. So that's why we start seeing food and medicine shortage in Venezuela since 2013, 2014. Uh, and, and at the same time, the capacity to import from Maduro, uh, those food, those medicine that was needed um, also was limited, right? Like he he started having problems financially. So he couldn't import that food and that medicine that was needed inside of the country. And that's where you've seen the humanitarian crisis conditions to come up and to appear. Right now, we're talking about the worst humanitarian crisis of the region, of the modern history of the Americas. And there are more than 300,000 children expected to die just because of lack of food. The average Venezuelan has lost about 24 pounds in the last year. And about 3 million Venezuelans have fled the country, most of them south to South America. They're expected to flee about 5.3 million in total by the end of this year. Um, so again, it's, it's like a war-like scenario inside of Venezuela, but with no war. Everything was caused by by humans. <laughs> All right. So, so for those of us who just don't follow Venezuela enough to know, remind us how it is that Maduro ends up in power, and then and then what he did to bring it to the situation now where Juan Guaido has assumed <laughs> his role. I mean, that that's a kind of a strange and unusual series of events. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, so yeah, Maduro was appointed um, by Chavez. And when Chavez, Chavez started getting sick on 2012, and he got a tumor, a cancer, which was treated in Cuba. So he, he Cuba was the only place that he trusted for to treat his illnesses. So, um, after a few months, he uh, Chavez passed away. But right before he passed, he publicly appointed Nicolas Maduro as his only official and legitimate successor. And so Nicolas Maduro, being the vice president that time, took over uh, in a temporary basis until new elections were held later in 2013. And those elections, those presidential elections in 2013 were very controversial as well. Uh, the opposition did not recognize the results. There are many proof to show that they were fraudulent. However, Nicolas Maduro was able to move forward and, and to, to become the president of Venezuela for the net for the following six years. Um, today, there's a huge... So what we're seeing today is somehow similar to what we saw in 2013. Um, there were presidential elections held last year. And those elections were not free, were not fair. They were political prisoners. And, and the opposition, again, did not recognize the results. The big difference this time is that the international community, the vast majority of the international community, did not recognize the results. And that's what uh, Juan Guaido came into the political scene. When you don't have a legitimate president in Venezuela, the Venezuelan constitution indicates that the head of the National Assembly, the Congress, should take over. 
in a temporary basis. And that's why Juan Guaido um, took over. Uh, he, he did not self-claim himself president. It was the Venezuelan constitution who claimed him as the president of Venezuela until free and fair elections are held. And that's where we are right now. He He's trying to... The problem is, is more complex because Nicolás Maduro remains de facto president in Venezuela. He's still controlling the institutions. Juan Guaidó does not control any institution besides the National Assembly. Um, so they, there cannot be free and fair elections until Nicolás Maduro leaves, right? And and then working the conditions on the ground to actually make it a very free and fair. So that's where we are right now. It's a complex constitutional, political, humanitarian crisis that really is complex to deal with. Right. So, so at this point, um, how much support does Guaido have inside? But he seems like he has a, quite a bit outside. But does he have support inside Venezuela? Yeah. I mean, talking about Guaido, he's he's a he was not well known even within Venezuela until earlier this year. He's a thirty-five year old political leader uh, who led the student movement in 2007, who I actually was part of, and I know Juan Guaido because he, he we went to the same school. And so he was part of this new generation who was born from this uh, student movement. So he doesn't carry much baggage with him. He's He doesn't, there, there is not many, there's no corruption scandals. His background is, is clean. So, and, and also he's connecting with the Venezuelan people in a way that we haven't seen from other political leaders in recent history. So he's very popular. And it's not about the opposition. It's, uh, it's more about himself. He's, he's, he ha he's very humble. He comes from a, a, a middle-class family from, a, from Vargas, which is a coastal city in Venezuela. And, uh, and again, he's a high-qualified young professional, and I think he's doing a, a great job on trying to, to unite the Venezuelan people and they unite the, com the international community towards restoring democracy in Venezuela, right? So, yeah. It does feel a little unfortunate, though, that the deck seems to be pretty much stacked against him. He's managed to get so much support from outside, but as long as Maduro controls the military and the military has so far shown basically no intention of switching sides, it's not clear how much authority Guaido can really have or whether he, can, he, he can't hold new elections until he actually controls some of the apparatus of government. So it really seems like we're kind of at an impasse here. Would that be accurate? Yes, it is. Uh, but it's been only over a month until he uh, took control, really, until he became the president. And yes, you're right. At the end, it's going to come down to the military because they are the ones who keep Maduro in power. Um, so the question is when or how the military are going to start uh, um, stepping up and kind of try to restore democracy. Um, is 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 a complex situation because Venezuela has more generals than the, all the NATO country together. Um, and, and that's not by coincidence. That's been the strategy of Maduro to try to disseminate power structures and, in, and businesses and incentives among all these generals, right? And that's why Venezuela is not only a dictatorship, it's a mafia state, it's a narco state. There's a lot of narco trafficking activities within the government, within the regime. Um, there is gold trafficking, there is gas trafficking, there's human trafficking. So there's a lot of criminal activities happening. 
And 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 in a way, Maduro, yes, is the face of the regime. But if you look beyond Maduro, you will you will find maybe one hundred other people who are somehow engaged on some sort of criminal activities who are officially in power in Venezuela in different institutions and different and agencies. Yeah, and that just makes it far more difficult to actually talk about any kind of power shift or transition here, uh, especially when, as you say, they're so tied to to organized crime. And, and there's even ties to various sort of terrorist groups. Hugo Chavez spent a number of years building up ties to international terror groups and acting as a money laundering center for them. So it's all very unsavory. Yeah. Well, and, and to foreshadow a conversation for a few minutes from now, you know, these are the kind of things that it's easy to forget when people are calling for change. Maduro is the poster child for the problem, but he is not the problem. Yes. No, correct. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so we are recording this episode uh, on Thursday afternoon. Uh, we'll release it Tuesday morning. Um, and I believe that we're expecting some big developments in Venezuela over the weekend, particularly with regard to this issue of humanitarian aid. Could we talk a little about that? Sure. Yeah. Um, so what's going, what we know today <laughs> is that um, there are over $50 million um of humanitarian aid positioned at the Colombian-Venezuelan border, specifically in Cúcuta, which is the major crossing point between both of the countries. Um, and this humanitarian aid is being provided by the U.S., but also by Colombia, Brazil, Canada, um, Uruguay, even Switzerland. I mean, we see many other countries shipping in and trying to provide humanitarian aid right now. And, and that's very important. There are over 100 million more being pledged. Um, and, and, and again, it's not only through Cúcuta. Juan Guaidó, the president Juan Guaidó, is calling for humanitarian aid by air and by sea. So we can see developments. Uh, we can see the country receiving humanitarian aid from different points and different crossing points. Um, the big question really for, for this weekend is, is the military going to allow the humanitarian aid to get in or are they going to block it potentially by force? And, and that's where we are right now. These are the two only scenarios. And each scenario, in my opinion, will will be a win-win for Guaido because if the military decides to block it, for example, um, that will backfire. That could backfire, starving Venezuelans and starving military officials who are also facing the humanitarian crisis, and and that could like motivate more protests, right? If they decide to let it in, which I think is Maduro's best case scenario, <laughs> uh, despite that he's been very outspoken about not letting any humanitarian aid in. Um, that could uh, be used by Maduro and the military for his own benefit, right? Like they, I mean, I don't want to step too much ahead here, especially because um, we're talking a little bit um, before the event happened, but uh, Maduro could easily use this humanitarian aid, um, for example, to claim that there are weapons and arms in the humanitarian aid packages or even use it for, for this CLAP program, which is a food subsidy program that the regime has imposed for social control. So they can repackage the humanitarian aid and distribute it and say that it was the regime, the one who 
who who who who is providing this aid to to starving Venezuelans. So in a way, Maduro can benefit if he received aid, and and that's kind of the question that we are right now. Yeah. Yeah, that's such a problem with with most dictatorships. There were cases where there of of North Korea taking U.S. aid, stripping off the made in U.S.A. packaging, and then passing it on to their people in the 90s, if I remember right. Yeah. Well, and and to me, this sort of sounds a lot like the Somalia case where, you know, there was a lot of aid sitting in the ports and it never got to any starving Somalis because it got picked up by the warlords crews. And so in order to get the stuff through to people to, uh, you know, prevent famine, you had to go in and start knocking heads. And, you know, that's it. We're going to find out in a few days where we're at. Yeah, exactly. Yes, but I, I think overall the strategy to put the focus on the humanitarian aid is a smart move by Juan Guaido and his team and the international community as well. Um, I mean, we're, again, we're talking about the worst humanitarian crisis, and this is aid that is really needed. And 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 using aid as a tool of pressure, which because at the end we we seen that the humanitarian aid has been is being used as, as to increase the pressure on maduro but that's okay it's legitimate in fact juan guaido is has is well within his power to request humanitarian aid as he did he's the leg- recognized legitimate constitutional president of a country that is starving. So, and that's what we've seen today. We've seen the, it, that request happen and the international community responding. So I think it's important to to, to put the, fe- the focus on, on, the, on the humanitarian aid. It's the right thing to do. So I think the elephant in the room here is the question of U.S. intervention. Um, and to some extent, the fact that we have already intervened in this situation simply by, as you say, recognizing Guaido. In fact, there are rumors that that before Guaido actually declared himself president, he he knew that he would receive backing from the US. So, I mean, the Trump administration has spoken openly about some kind of military intervention. Uh, the president seems pretty open to it. Do we understand why is that something that is actually feasible? Is it something that's a good idea? So just let, let me just give you my personal view here and then we go through what the U.S. administration may be thinking. Um, I, I don't think it's beneficial to use any any type of military intervention on Venezuela, especially now that we have a legitimate president recognized by more than 50 countries. So I, my, my, my argument is, is, is that we need to use that route which is a constitutional route and it's been a month and 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 I know that there is a lot of desperation and frustration when it comes to Venezuelan humanitarian crisis and everything but now that we are in this route let's try to push as much as possible with humanitarian aid maybe individual sanctions is a way to increase pressure on Maduro uh, maybe recovering those assets that the republic has that is Maduro still control Freezing those assets and trying to transfer those assets and bank accounts to Guaido's control is, is another very important tool. Recognizing ambassadors that Guaido has appointed in the war is another important tool. So we, we, we have, now that we have a new legitimate government, our options are wider. And, and I think we need to, we need to start using those options now before we get into the military conversation. Um, um, and, and yes, uh, going back to to the U.S. and other, um, so I mean, I mean, l- let me push back a little bit on the U.S. because I, I think these 
response from the international community has not been led only by the US. Is the Latin American countries have formed this group that is called the Lima Group, which is composed by Colombia, Brazil, Argentina, Chile, um, Peru, and all the major com uh, countries in the region. And the Lima Group were the really ones in the lead when it comes to recognizing Guaido as the president. Yes, the US was the first country to recognize him on January 23rd, but if you look back in, in earlier those days, the Lima Group was ready to recognize him, and they did right after um, Trump uh, did it publicly. But again, it's not a US-led effort, it's a Lima Group together with the US, with Canada, with other countries who are really uh, recognized that this is a crisis. And on the military, yes, I mean, there is a, a scenarios that the US administration is is, is considering, I think is kind of the last resort they, they have in mind. I think it's more, more of a credible threat that they're trying to impose here more than a real intervention. I can be wrong, I'm, I'm not in the US government at all, but um, that's kind of my sense. They're using the rhetoric to divide the military and make the military respond to to against Maduro, right? So that's kind of where I see it. I like hearing that the last resort is is the is the way. I, that 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 I, I jive with that. But um, you know, Trump doesn't sound as patient as all that these days. Um, and the fact that Pence is going to travel down and try to crank up the pressure, and you've got Marco Rubio and other people here cranking up the pressure. Um, you know, one theory is it's just to crank up the pressure and, and in the hopes that uh, Maduro folds. But the other unfortunate possibility is that once you've cranked up the pressure, it's now on you to to win as, you know, and it's just a weird way American politics works, I guess. Yeah. Um, so what's going to make Maduro step down here? Like what's like, you know, is it safe for him to do that? I mean, is, or is this one of those things where he's got to kind of cling to the end. Yeah, that's the one million dollar question. Um, in a way, it's going to come down to the military. And they are the only ones who can force Maduro out. And if you don't want to rely on the military, then you your only other alternative is to try to convince Maduro to leave, right? And and that has been on the table. That's been not new. That's been years trying to convince him that he's just driving the country into a collapse a scenario, which that's where we are today. Um, so the, my problem with that is that even if you have a plan for Maduro to leave and you present it to him and he likes it and he buys, and he says, Yes, I think he's kind of trapped though because he, again, he he's within this mafia state and the generals and all the, all his inner circle, we also have to buy in in that way out plan. And I don't think they're all on the same page. They're all divided. They're all looking for their own safety, and there are just too many people to 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 put a safeguard here. Uh, so in a way, is is a complex crisis because you're not dealing with one with one individual like Maduro. You're dealing with many. Um, so it, that's why is 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 more complicated than 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 just getting Maduro out of office. And even when Maduro leaves, let's talk about a little bit about the day after when Juan Guaido. I mean, ideally Juan Guaido. So Maduro leaves. Juan Guaido takes over. What is going to happen to all the armed groups that are, are, are operate, operating in Venezuela? And they're called colectivos, which are civilians with arms. The ELN, the FARC, are, you know, these guerrilla groups from, 
from Colombia, they are present in 13 different states in Venezuela. So what are you going to do with, with those? And, and then again, all the narco-trafficking network, all the money laundering, corruption. In a way, Venezuela today is peaceful. There is no civil war. Um, but the risk of getting into a conflict a scenario once Maduro leaves is high if um, Juan Guaido and the international community and, and many other pieces are not put on the same on, on that route and trying to stabilize the country in a way. So again, it's, it's, it's not easy. Um, and, and, and I don't think that looking at samples around the world is helpful either. It's a unique crisis. And uh, so we need to kind of think out of the pots and trying to engage and, and help Venezuela right away. I mean, to some extent, what you're saying, it sounds to me like America's highest priority here should be trying to ensure stability in Venezuela by, by whatever means necessary. And I'm honestly not sure whether that is Guaido, whether that is Maduro staying, whether that is some other combination. But it certainly sounds like any further intervention, whether it's by the US, whether it's by the, the Lima group, the countries nearby, is probably just going to make things worse. Yeah, I I, I think um, having a peaceful constitutional way out of this crisis is the best way to go. Um, Juan Guaido, and it's going to help Juan Guaido to to help to to unite the country moving forward. Right, it's easier to to find a, a yeah. Go ahead. Well, I just I just want to jump in because I'm wondering to myself, you know, given the the state of cronyism there. Is is Guaido? Does he have any hope of leading Venezuela in a new direction? Given that nothing else would change other than he swaps in for Maduro. Yeah, I mean, again, that's a good question. It's a hard question because um, he will have to deal with the different factions within the opposition. Um, and just to remind this to the audience, Venezuela is a multi-party system, and there are over twenty-eight political parties only within the opposition coalition. So you have different visions, different philosophies, uh, different ways of how to deal with, with this crisis. And Juan Guaido is only represents just one political party in a sense, right? Like he's the president and he represents the country right now, but he's just coming from one political party. So is he going to be able to unite the opposition and, and then the Chavismo supporters who are still present in Venezuela and who will be... A, a player moving forward as well. And then the remaining of the Venezuelan opposition who are frustrated with both the Chavismo and the opposition. So is he going to be able to unite all of these factions? Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a hard question. I don't think uh, it's hard. I just don't see it right now. It's, it's going to be a hard a scenario. Um, but that's why having um, a military intervention, it will just make that case harder for Guaido to unite all the factions. If we see, however, a constitutional way out here, which is where we're pushing for because he's a legitimate president, then we'll, he will be in a better position to try to unite and call the Chavismo to discuss how to rebuild the nation, call the Venezuelan people, call the opposition and kind of build this platform, right? But Yeah, so just to sort of restate what you said another way, Guaido is going to have a hell of a laundry list of things to do the day after he actually takes power, you know, disassembling the, the parallel institutions Chavez set up, building support among the opposition that's always been so fragmented, building support among the people, resolving the humanitarian economic crisis, uh, 
But if we add intervention to that, then he's also got to make peace as well before he even starts on everything else. So very difficult situation. It is. It is one of the most complex crises. However, let me just put a positive note, a ton here, because the country has a lot to offer. It's a country that has a great social, uh, great people with high qualified people. And, and so during a day after a scenario, assuming that Maduro leaves and, and the democratic um, president becomes the the leader, right, of this of this mess, uh, and with the help of the international community and international organizations, and maybe moving forward, I mean, I've been pushing for this issue, the use of new technologies like um, blockchain and cryptocurrency that can that can help rebuild a nation in a transparent and decentralized way, right? Decentralizing power is 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 probably one of the most important things if we want to help Venezuela moving forward. So, you know, again, they are potential, uh, Venezuela has potential to move forward and is a, is a rich nation, is being a leading country in Latin America for so many decades before. So I, I think it has the, the cards to move forward if the right help and the right timing is, is being put on this. Well, I think that's a great positive note to add this on. So I'm sure we will continue to discuss Venezuela in the coming months and years. Uh, but thank you again so much for joining us today and helping us understand Thank this. you. Thanks for the invitation. And thanks to everybody at home for listening. If you like the show, please leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts.